Well, our scripture reading this morning comes from the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Throughout our series in the Beatitudes, what we're going to do is read all of the Beatitudes together as a church. And so I want to ask you to stand. And we are going to read these Beatitudes out loud together from Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10. And the words of the Beatitudes will be on the screen so that you can follow along. Let's read them together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word for us today. Thanks be to God. Church, you may be seated. Kids and Brenda Rebro, you may be dismissed this time, at this time for... Uh, worshipers in training. Good morning. My name is Isaac Miller. I oversee the care ministries here at Grace, and it's good to be with you this morning uh, as we dive into this word together. Let's just start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We are grateful for the revelation that you have given of who you are and who you want us to be. I pray that as we look into your word together this morning, you would open our eyes and our hearts to hear from you directly. You would remove any obstacles or distractions, that you would speak clearly, and that you would minister to our hearts. We pray these things in your name. Amen. I want you to think for a moment what you enters your mind when you see one of these come out. Maybe you're in your living room or you're in a neighbor's house. They begin to tell you a story and suddenly they stop, walk over to the counter and pick up one of these. What enters your mind? If they don't have a cold, as you might sense that I have been recovering from. Uh, If they don't have a cold, their nose isn't runny, you you probably assume that there's going to be some emotion coming out of what comes next. And if we're all honest, sometimes that brings up feelings of discomfort, doesn't it? Like, oh boy, what did I just get into? Or, oh no, I hope this doesn't last long. Our verse for this morning, the Beatitude from Matthew 5, verse 4, says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, we're confronted with what at face value is an odd statement this morning, again, as last week and as next week, I'm sure, will be the case. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
As we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus Christ, we're going to need to remind ourselves over and over what the term blessed really means here. It's not a term that indicates some future reception of goodness for an act done or an attitude that is held. It's not a transactional phrase or a point being made about getting good things. This term used here in what we call the Beatitudes within the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus Christ means that these are the fruitful ones. The people being described here are the ones who are living a flourishing life. The people with, with these attitudes and these attributes and these actions are truly living the good life. They've, they've got it made. So with that understanding of what the word blessed means, applying that definition to our verse this morning, this is how I would paraphrase this verse. And again, during this, this series, we're going to take a short sentence, paraphrase it with more words so as to help us understand it better. Typically, we would take a large passage and whittle it down to a small sentence. But this morning, this is what I believe God would have us hear. The flourishing ones in God's kingdom are those who mourn over sin and its effects. Only they are able to and will receive true comfort. The flourishing ones in God's kingdom are those who mourn over sin and its effects. Only they are able to and will receive true comfort. How can this be the case? How can Jesus be saying, these are the people that got it made? They're living the good life. It would be one thing we would understand if Jesus said, yeah, those who mourn, they're great because they're really in touch with their emotional side. Or, yeah, those who mourn, it's kind of their personality, but they're okay too. No. This isn't as if he's saying it's okay to mourn more than others. He's saying those who mourn are living the good life. They've got it all. They should be the envy of their neighbors and their coworkers. So in order to understand how this works, we'll need to look at what these words mean, specifically mourn and comfort. How is Jesus using these words in this sermon to the people listening on that day and all of us hearing it this day? We understand the word mourning to be sorrow. We often think of those who are in mourning as those who have recently lost someone they love. They're grieved at the loss of a relationship, a mother, a father, son or daughter. We may even think of those who are in mourning as some who are sitting longer in their grief than we would expect them to be. Like, wow, she's really mourning the loss of her sister. These are appropriate uses of the word mourning. I did look up the word mourning in the dictionary and the first Definition and example is basically what I just gave you. The second one, not so much. It said to feel regret or sadness about the loss of something. And its example was publishers mourned declining sales of hardback fiction. Really? So there are varying opinions and thoughts about what mourning truly is. 
Some take it more lightly than others. Some would disagree on what should be mourned. Many disagree on how long we should mourn the loss of something. We'll come back to this later. Mourning has conflicting definitions and opinions surrounding it. So what does scripture teach us about mourning? I'm submitting today that this is what this verse means. This first part of the verse is saying the true mourning is sorrow over sin and its effects. True mourning, biblically speaking, is sorrow over sin and the effects of sin on the world. If we look to scripture, we'll see throughout the Old Testament, if you do a scan of the English word mourning, people over and over mourned the loss of a loved one. Throughout the Old Testament, we read of a person who died and their husband or wife mourned their loss. These are common and expected, and we would all agree today. In the prophet Joel, we read a different use of the word mourning. And this is God's word from Joel 2, verses 12 through 14. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and drink offering for the Lord your God. What does Joel teach us about the biblical view of mourning? This isn't just the loss of a loved one that we've discussed already. There's an understanding here that things in a more general, broad, large sense are not what they should be. There's a large-scale brokenness between God and man. There's distance in this relationship, a divide that isn't supposed to be there. There's a returning that needs to happen. Twice in this passage in Joel, tells us to return to the Lord. And the return that needs to be happened, if you notice there, is one directional. It's not a two-way street here. The return that needs to happen from the book of Joel is one way. It's us returning to God. And with that return to God, we see the hope and the promise of a blessing to follow. So if we step back for a moment and consider the various categories of things that we mourn, there are a few categories that we mourn today. We mourn death. We mourn sickness. We grieve over cancer. We mourn lost relationships. Those who are still here on earth but have chosen not to interact with us. We grieve that. We mourn when fear or anxiety overwhelms someone that we love. Now those might appear at first glance to be very different categories, very different facets of mourning. But there's something that binds them all together. There's one thing that they all have in common. They're all a result of one momentous event in human history. We're familiar with how things began. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and behold, it was very good. 
But then Adam and Eve decided they wanted to be like God. They didn't trust him, and they sinned. In Genesis 3, we read the result of that sin. And we see all of these things. In Genesis 3, verse 10, we see fear, anxiety, and shame. And he said, I heard, you in the, I heard the sound of you in the garden, the man said, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Fear, anxiety, shame. Pain, challenged and broken relationships from verse 16 of chapter 3. God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Broken relationships and pain. Sickness and death from 3, verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All of these things that we mourn today in life have the exact same root. They stem from the fall. Now, let me be very clear. What this is not saying is that your sickness or death, the loss of your loved one, is the direct result of your sin. What this is saying is that we were created in the image of God, intended to live forever in perfect community and relationship with him. And when the fall occurred, it introduced all of these things into our existence. This was the point at which all things began to unravel and go downhill. Yes, we mourn physical death. What greater earthly loss can someone experience than death? And it's a result of the fall. Yes, we mourn sickness. We were not created to be sick. It's a result of the fall. Yes, we mourn people who are not the same as they once were, mentally, cognitively, otherwise. Those are a result of the fall. And yes, we mourn broken relationships. God created us for relationship, and when they're broken, it hurts, and ultimately it's a result of the fall. True mourning is sorrow over sin and its effects. True mourning is grieving over the effects of the fall. Now, if we consider why Jesus is teaching this in Matthew 5 and why we're receiving it together here today, we realize that it needed to be taught because humanity does not do mourning well. We can look back in history and see that in Jesus' day, they mourned fairly well. They were pretty upset about the loss of life for quite a while. Culturally, they would gather together for days on end to grieve the loss of a loved one. They would bring other people in to mourn with them and to help them grieve and process their loss. They would not eat for days. They would tear their clothing. They often even had a second burial service one year after the initial one. Even this level of mourning required Jesus speaking into their lives and letting them know that true mourning, true mourners were the blessed ones. Let alone where we stand today. We don't do mourning well today. There are horrific things that happen that we do not adequately mourn. 
losses that occur that we do not deal with. We as a society are very poor mourners. Our culture has told us that things need to be quick and fast, whether it's our meal preparation or our sorrow. Both microwaved. We often respond with a distraction or attempt to lighten the mood. What some of us always say, joking is coping. We've been ingrained with this to the degree that we don't even realize it. We're not even aware of the fact that we're not prepared to mourn. In 2016, my brother-in-law, Drew Papillon, died of brain cancer. Alyssa and I were very close to Amy, her sister, and Drew. The four of us did a lot together before we were married, after we were each married. We spent a lot of time together. We fought the cancer together, spending hours at hospitals, appointments, surgeries, and treatments. After five years of fighting, his body succumbed to the cancer and he passed from this life to the next. The day after he was buried, I went back to work because I don't know, what are you supposed to do? Isn't that what is supposed to happen? The burial is the end of mourning and grieving and now you move on with the rest of your life and get back to things. Sometimes we want to distract ourselves so as not to think about it. Other times we just don't know what to do. So I'd walk into my office, close the door and just weep. There was so much sorrow, so much grief. And to be honest, so much anger. But I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't realize how long it would take. We have not been taught to mourn. I didn't consider that it would take longer than a week to grieve this loss. Being immersed in our quick fix culture, I didn't know what else to do. So I just went back to work. We as a family have lost more since both of Alyssa's parents in 2021. They're all such important people in our lives. And as I've learned about mourning, I realize it's a lifelong experience. There are still days, eight years after Drew passed away, where I'll weep over the lost friendship, missed opportunities with him, chances for him to interact with my kids. And that's okay. There are waves of emotion that will come over us without a moment's notice. Those of you who have lost, you know this. Grief doesn't announce its presence. It can suddenly overwhelm you. It will rear its head in moments you least expect it, and it will demand your attention. We don't get to decide when these emotions come, but we need to let them come. We need to deal with them appropriately. We need to express them to someone. My tendency personally was to hide those feelings, bottle them up, close them down, move on. That bottling up of emotions changed them from sorrow to anger, and that anger needed to be dealt with. I know you look at Isaac angry, what? I know you're all thinking that. <clears throat> I realized I needed to talk to someone about what I was feeling and thinking and experiencing, or he was gonna eat me up, and so I did that. We don't do mourning well as a culture. We need help. But the loss of a loved one isn't the only facet that Jesus is speaking to here. True mourning is also mourning over our sins. 
Our sins are the things separating us from God. When left unaccounted for or not dealt with, these are the things that lead to eternal separation from God. How much more sorrowful is that? How much more should our sin against God pain us? Sometimes the negative, hurtful experiences we have are directly related to our own actions. Do we mourn over our sin? Do we grieve what we have done against him and others? Do we grieve the fact that we have rebelled against our loving Father and chose our own way, just like Adam and Eve? This is what God was saying in the book of Joel. In those short verses, he repeats, return to the Lord. Please return to the Lord. Return to him. He challenges them to tear their hearts, not their garments. Get the work done inside. The repentance inside actually express sorrow from the heart. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says, there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and a worldly sorrow that leads to death. When you face the sin that you are encountered with, be sure that your sorrow is godly and leads to repentance. The difference there is that the worldly sorrow is really just you mourning the loss of the idol that you have built up. You get caught in sin, and so you're worried that you're not going to be able to partake of that sin anymore because now someone else is aware. Be sure that your sorrow is godly, which repents of that idol, seeks its destruction, and desires to walk forward with Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't yet have a relationship with Christ, if you have not yet repented of your sin and been made right with God, today is the day of salvation. I would encourage you to consider your own heart and how it has rejected God's ways. If you've not mourned your own sin, you will not be able to find true eternal happiness nor will you receive the true comfort that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 5, 4. True mourning, we mourn over death, we mourn over our own sin, but we also mourn over the sins of others. And only after we mourn our own sin can we adequately and appropriately mourn the sin of others. Jesus teaches us, take the log out of your own eye so you can get the speck out of your brother's. Once you have appropriately mourned your own sin, then the flourishing ones can help their brothers or sisters in Christ out of their sin. When we as a family have someone caught in sin, Galatians 6 tells us to restore them in a spirit of gentleness and beware that we too are not tempted. We should mourn when our brother or sister is stuck in sin. They're in bondage. We should care, we should grieve, we should break them out of that prison and walk with them toward holiness. True mourning is sorrow over sin and its effects. We come to the second half of the verse now where Jesus says, for they shall be comforted. What does Jesus mean when he says they will be comforted? True comfort comes from God. True comfort comes from God. As we've walked through these first chapters of Matthew together, we've often seen allusions to or quotations from the book of Isaiah. 
While there's not a direct quote here from Isaiah, we do see an idea that we can glean from Isaiah as we look at Matthew 5.4. In Isaiah 40, you may remember these verses being quoted earlier in Matthew. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In Matthew 3, we see John the Baptist quoting these verses. Well, out of that Isaiah passage, what comes right before it? He's announcing the coming of the Lord. What comes right before that? Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort, comfort my people, and then prepare the way of the Lord. God tells them that comfort is coming and then announces that they need to make way for the Lord to come to provide this comfort. He says to speak tenderly to them, to let them know that their trials and warfare is ended, that they are being pardoned. What comforting words to hear God speak to his people. Because as we've considered all the pain and suffering that can ultimately be traced back to the fall, to the rejection of God by created mankind, what can be more comforting to, than to hear that the one who was sinned against, the one who was unjustly rejected and dishonored, the one who was rebelled against is the one saying, comfort, peace, and forgiveness on you. I'm sure we've been in situations where we've sinned against a brother or sister, and a third party will come along and say, oh, don't worry, they'll get over it, they'll be okay. Just give them some time. I'm never really settled with that, you know? Will they really be okay? Will I really receive forgiveness from them? Do they understand my sorrow? Until that offended party comes to me and says, you are forgiven, I receive your apology, then the matter is settled. And that's what we hear this morning from Isaiah 40. The offended party, God himself, is saying it clearly, directly, and in multiple ways. God desires to bring comfort in the midst of the pain caused by our rebellion, in the midst of the pain caused by the effects of sin in the fall. God, the offended party, is bringing comfort. But how does he do this in this world that we live in? True comfort comes from God, and it comes in two ways, through relationship with Christ and through other believers. First, through relationship with Christ. We see this in Isaiah 40, fulfilled in Matthew 3 and following. Jesus is the one who has come to bring forgiveness and to pay the penalty for sin. Through a relationship with Christ, we can have our sins forgiven and the debt of sin canceled. This is comforting because the penalty we deserved has been taken from us. But it's much more than this as well. It's not just a, a sigh of relief, I'm not going to be punished now. I escape by the skin of my teeth. It's much more than this as well. It's not only a lack of punishment, it's a gift of presence. Jesus teaches us that after he died and rose again, he would ascend to heaven and send the Holy Spirit to us, the Comforter. We are comforted by the very presence of God in our midst, in our lives. God is here with us through the Holy Spirit. God's presence gives us comfort in the midst of the trials we face. Whether it's the loss of a loved one, 
a battle with cancer, a broken relationship with others, the sin in our hearts that we've committed, the sin that others have committed against us. The Holy Spirit reminds us of our right standing with him. The Holy Spirit is the seal of our redemption, reminding us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. This comfort of forgiven sin will grow sweeter as the reality and horror of the sin that we've committed grows as well. Many have said that the older they are and the more they grow in their relationship with God, the more clearly they see their sin and its horrible, insidious nature. But the flip side of that is the more beautiful God's comfort and grace and forgiveness are. Finally, comfort comes through other believers who have mourned. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we, which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. We see clearly here that true comfort comes from God and spreads through other believers. He goes on to say, we comfort others with the comfort we've received from God himself. As we receive comfort from God, we are to pass that on to those around us. As we learn and understand more about mourning, as we grow in our own ability to mourn, we will grow in our ability to comfort others. Do you see how the two are intertwined? Without mourning, there is no comfort received. Without receiving comfort, we can't comfort others. Without admitting the loss that we experience, we cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit's presence. At various times in parenting our kids, one of them will hurt themselves. It happens. They run, they fall, they trip, they, they fight, yes, maybe. Uh, they argue, they get hurt. And sometimes they won't come to us with that injury, right? Maybe they were doing something they shouldn't have been doing and so they want to, don't want to tell us that they got hurt doing it because they don't want to hear I told you so, not that I would ever say that. Uh, maybe they were just having so much fun that they didn't want to stop playing in spite of the injury and so they don't tell us. And we'll find out later, right? Like later that night or the next day, we'll see a new bruise. Like where'd that come from? I don't know, I tripped yesterday. Or they'll complain about a cut hurting. It's amazing how when they're interested in something and doing something, pain is like non-existent, right? But then as soon as that is done, suddenly it hurts very badly. Well, other times they do come to us because it's a serious wound. One, specifically, there was a large cut on a hand. Uh, they came to us, let us know about it. We were able to take them to the ER and get it taken care of. Comfort can only be received when one mourns. It can only be received when one realizes the wound and comes forward with it. Then we receive comfort from God through the Holy Spirit and other believers. Even if we haven't experienced the exact same thing that someone else is walking through, we will, able to, we will be able to give comfort because we have mourned how the fall has taken something from us we can mourn how the fall has taken something from them. We have mourned the loss of something in our lives, and so we can mourn the loss of something in their lives. 
Giving comfort is not something we are naturally good at. I believe part of that comes from the reality that we're not good at mourning. We haven't sat in grief or seen it through long periods of time. So how can we grow in comforting one another? I've been learning more about this personally myself in the last weeks. 11 of us, myself and 10 of you, are walking through a class through Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. It's called Helping Relationships. And our goal is that we would have a group of people who are prepared and trained and ready to have conversations with you all about what you're facing, the trials you have in front of you, if you're mourning or grief-stricken or sick. Part of the class is reading this book entitled Side by Side by Edward Welch. Recently in the readings, he's been teaching us some of these exact skills, how to listen well, how to comfort one another, how to be helpful and not a hindrance in these things. Many of these we've heard before, but it's always good to be reminded of these things. In the midst of the uncomfortable situations, when the Kleenex box comes out and we start to get nervous, sometimes we say things we know we shouldn't. We're tempted to say the wrong thing or do something to make it stop. So how can we comfort those around us who are mourning? I'll finish with these four quick applications. One is realize. We need to understand that and realize that comfort is often mostly about our presence with someone, being with them. Just as the presence of the Holy Spirit comforts us in this life, so our presence in someone else's life can provide comfort. If you're going through a trial, you know that walking through it alone is one of the worst ways to go through it. And so if you have the presence of someone with you, that can be immensely helpful. So realize that presence is most important. Two, resist. Resist the urge to speak away the troubles. Again, our culture tells us we should get through these things quickly. Hurry up with this sorrow thing. Sometimes we think we should say something like, ah, God has a purpose. This will work out. Uh, it could be worse. No. On the contrary, it's okay to sit in the sorrow for a time, again, letting them know they're not alone and you're with them. If we're honest with ourselves, we, 99% of the time, we do not have the answer for what they're walking through anyway. So let us resist the urge to say something quick or trite and pretend that we do. If we do feel the urge, if you feel an overwhelming urge to say something, we would be encouraged to speak God's word to them, not our own. He, on the other hand, has the answers to life. And doing that with a heart of compassion can be helpful. Realize it's about our presence. Resist the urge to speak quickly. Request is the third one. Ask how you can pray for them. And then do it immediately. How can I pray for you? They give you an answer. Stop and pray for them. Along with this one, I would add a warning about flippant questions and answers. It would be wonderful if, as a family, all of us here at Grace Church, if we could ask one another on Sunday, is there any other time, how are you? And if we could receive increasingly transparent answers. You know what I mean? How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Great. How are you? Happy Sunday! 
Sometimes it's not a happy Sunday. And I would challenge us as a church to create a space where we can be honest. Things are not going well today. I barely made it in this building with my kids' heads attached. (laughs) Or I'm really struggling right now. I didn't want to come today, but I did. Allow us to create a space where we can be transparent with one another and provide care for those needs that we have. Finally, reveal. Reveal more of your mourning to one another. This is this discomfort that happens, and it's okay. It's what we got to work through. I would specifically challenge you parents to reveal more of your mourning to your children age appropriately. And even more specifically, allow them to see your grief over your sin against them. It happens, right? And so when it happens, when you're convicted of that sharp tongue or that overreaction, I would encourage you to allow your children to see you mourn over that sin to them. Model for one another a sorrow. Reveal your own mourning over the things in this world. As we come to the conclusion here this morning, let us remember what this passage is. These Beatitudes are not specifically a call to action. They're a communication of a truth. It doesn't say you need to mourn more so you can be comforted. It's not an imperative or a command. And yet, even as it declares a truth, even as it is a communication of a truth, it should spur us on to embody the kind of person that it's speaking of. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We should want to be good mourners, because Jesus teaches us that that is the good life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you have opened hearts and minds this morning. Your word is planted deep into us, and through your spirit, it would sprout and bear fruit. Grant us a few moments now in silence, Lord, that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit and help us apply what you are saying to us this morning.